Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. This week, I have a bunch of listener comments on different topics, and then we'll talk about words related to taxes and some surprising findings about last week's sufficiently seruncified familect story. Last week, I talked about how back in Middle English, the pronouns mine and thine led people to also end their other pronouns with N sounds, giving us hisen, hurin, ourin, yorin, and so on. Well, a follower who goes by erg on Mastodon, E-R-R-G, told me more about a recent use. Daniel Drew was a New York stock speculator in the mid-1800s, and he's famous for this saying about the nature of short-selling. He who sells what isn't hisn must buy it back or go to prison. And it seems like rhyming is where it still finds the occasional use even in modern times, because a listener who goes by Ratty Daddy on Mastodon pointed me to a Nick Lowe song from the 1970s called So It Goes, with the line, On his arm was a tight skin vision, wonder why she ain't mine, she is hisn. Fun stuff, and you can hear a clip of it on YouTube. And then Ratty Daddy also had an interesting comment about the loneliness segment. He wrote, I suspect Tolkien, a linguist, was very aware of the older meaning of loneliness when he called Erebor the lonely mountain in The Hobbit. Could be. It wouldn't surprise me. And thanks for the interesting comments. Very few people outside of those who work for the IRS take much pleasure in taxes. But while paying your taxes might make April feel gloomy, digging deep into the origins of tax terms provides a bit of linguistic levity during these dark days of tax season. The idea of taxation, or the collection of a fee by the government based on one's property and wealth, has been around for at least 5,000 years, levied early on by Egyptian pharaohs who realized that collecting a portion of grain and cooking oil from their populace made for nicer royal digs and bigger well-fed armies. In fact, the famed Rosetta Stone, the inscribed stone that helped crack the code of ancient hieroglyphics, tells us a lot about taxes. It has writing about Egyptian ruler Ptolemy V's new tax code, particularly the tax-exempt status of temples. 
a bit less romantic of an inscription than what you might envision when admiring the stone at the British Museum. Now, despite the fact that paying some sort of tax to your government has been around for a long time, the word tax itself is a bit more recent. The verb form to tax came into English around the 14th century through the old French word taxer, T-A-X-E-R, meaning to estimate or assess an amount. There was also a noun form, tax, T-A-X-E, which meant pretty much the same thing it does today, a payment you're required by law to make to a governmental authority. All of these forms came to French from the Latin word taxare, which meant to assess or estimate. In turn, the Latin word is hypothesized to have come from a Proto-Indo-European root tag, T-A-G, meaning to touch or handle, and which also gave us the modern English words tangible and tactile. Now, at first glance, it may seem that assessing and touching don't have that much in common, at least nothing legal. But the Latin word seems to have also referred to handling money, which makes the early relation between this pair of words make a bit more sense. Since French-speaking Anglo-Normans were the powers that be for centuries in Britain after the Norman invasion in 1066, the introduction of this word into English was likely not a disinterested one. And this wasn't the only word used to refer to the obligations Middle English people faced. For much of this period, the word task, T-A-S-Q-U-E, also known as our modern task, T-A-S-K, was used somewhat interchangeably with the word tax. In fact, task is from the same Latin root as tax, only with the K and S sounds transposed. This is the same process that gave us the modern alternation between the word ask and its less well-regarded sibling, axe. As with tax, the K-S order in ask is the original, and the S-K order came about through a sound-switching process linguists call metathesis. The thing driving task and taxes wider acceptance was that they developed different meanings over time with tax becoming associated with monetary obligation and task becoming something associated with labor and to-do lists. In contrast, acts and ask stayed in competition, carrying the same meaning, mainly as dialectical variants. Eventually, ask became the more dominant standard form and acts became stigmatized. As will come to no surprise to anyone who has experienced paying it, the word tax began to take on a negative association as something demanding or wearisome, a meaning employed in modern uses such as deciphering the new tax rules is so taxing. To try to help avoid tarnishing the reputation of taking people's money, the word duty, which in the 13th century had a bit more of a positive spin as something honorable, was put into play to try to make taxation fun again, but to no avail. Soon, duty became just one more word alongside tax on the list of what to avoid talking about on first dates or when serving as an elected official. Still, the enticement of getting something duty-free does remain a boon for airport travelers on international layovers. So, although a trip through the linguistic history of taxation may not help you avoid an audit, it might at least make you a little more appreciative of the practice by putting it in historical perspective. 
taxes by any name, have long been a fact of life, which is why the expression death and taxes has also been heard echoing in English for centuries. That segment was written by Valerie Friedland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of the forthcoming book, Like Literally Dude, on all the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFriedland.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Next, I have much more to tell you about last week's Familect story in which Chris Bacon talked about a grandmother who said, my sufficiency has been suffonsified. My old podcasting friend, Chris Christensen of the Amateur Traveler podcast, heard the show and wrote in to say his mother and grandmother would say something very similar. He very generously did a bunch of searching and sent me some links. For example, there's a long 2005 thread on the alt.usage.english Google group of people telling stories of the different variations of the phrase in their families and linking to other useful sources. And it turns out this expression goes back to at least the mid-1800s. Further, a listener who goes by PMB on Mastodon pointed me to an old 2010 episode of the radio program Away With Words that answered a caller question about the phrase, I am sufficiently saffonsified. They found a 1980 article about the phrase in the journal American Speech, 
in which Frederick G. Cassidy wrote about trying to track down this phrase. Cassidy was the editor of the Dictionary of American Regional English, and he said that in response to a question from an elderly woman in West Virginia, he posed a question about the phrase in a widely distributed publication and got more than 46 responses, mostly from people who remembered an older relative using it, and every one was slightly different. And there was a second common part to the phrase. It generally went like this. My sufficiency is fully saffonsified, and any more would be obnoxious to my fastidious taste. So there's a refusal, and then an explanation of the refusal. And I love this quotation from Cassidy's paper. He wrote, quote, Sarancified is clearly intended to be impressive and a bit mysterious. Our evidence suggests that the original formula was elaborated until it became too hard to learn and produced embarrassing breakdowns, and finally that it became fashionable as a sort of game to invent new amusing elaborations, unquote. He got letters and postcards from people from many countries, and he listed 17 different spellings. Some examples of the variations include, I have eaten to my sanctification, my sufficiency is greatly saffonsified. My sufficiency is prodigiously saffonsified. My sufficiency is completely saffonsified. Or they might say the first part a bit differently. My ample sufficiency is fully saffonsified, or my genteel sufficiency is fully saffonsified. Chris Christensen reported that his family said, My sufficiency has been serenified. Anything else would be obnoxious to my superfluency. A Google book search turned up a biography of Patrick Kerwin, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada in 1954, that revealed that he would push back his chair and say he was sufficiently saffonsified at the end of a meal. This Canadian connection is especially tantalizing because a 2002 post on Michael Quinian's wonderful Worldwide Words website suggested that although the phrase is found all over English-speaking countries, it seemed to be best known in Canada based on what he'd seen online and from correspondence he'd received about the phrase. And as a fun aside, he mentioned that it appears in the Canadian author Margaret Atwood's novel, Cat's Eye. In fact, my Google book search turned up the phrase in quite a few present-day novels. Plus, Chris Christensen even sent me a link to a 2007 song on Bandcamp called Sufficiently Serensified by the Spokane band 3H. In fact, it actually seems so widespread that at this point, I'm surprised it's not in the Oxford English Dictionary although I did find a single 2011 entry for it in the Urban Dictionary. But after all that, I didn't come across anything that convinced me of the actual origin of the phrase. I think that still remains a mystery. And thanks to everyone who helped me add to this fun, fascinating story. I love the surprise when what seems to be a family act turns out to be something more. And finally, I have another Familect story. Hello, Grammar Girl. I'm not sure that this qualifies as a Familect, but uh, anytime we take long rides when kids were a little small, we had the, the question always asked, how far are we? And I always just said 20 minutes. So no matter 
where we are even today as the kids are now young adults. So I'll ask where they are and they'll say we're, we're 20 minutes from home or 20 minutes from there, no matter how far they are away. Thank you. Thanks. That's kind of funny. Although it also feels like a very unhelpful answer now that you're all adults. And I find myself wondering how you plan, but it reminded me of visiting a friend in high school who had moved to Los Angeles. She described everywhere we wanted to go as about an hour away the beach, about an hour, the restaurant, about an hour, and so on. And to this day, I'm convinced that everything in LA is about an hour away from everywhere else. I suspect it has to do with the traffic. And if it looks like it's going to be more than an hour, you just go somewhere else. (laughs) Thanks for the call. If you want to share the story of your familect, a family dialect or word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83-321-4-GIRL. Call from a nice, quiet place, and we might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and our director of podcasts and my editor, Adam Cecil, who's enjoying his newly opened local branch of the Brooklyn Public Library. Our marketing associate is Davina Tomlin. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our intern is Cameron Lacey. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.